for the... What is nothing? Yeah, that's deep. What in the fuck are we doing here? That's deep, bro. Welcome to That's Deep Bro. I am your host, Christina Pajitsky. Thank you for downloading this episode. Oof, big episode this week, bros. I got a lot to cover. So many deep thoughts to get into. But first, a little bit of business. Uh, if you don't know, there's a That's Deep Bro official podcast t-shirt. Finally, uh, go to TomSeguro.com, click on the store page. And you can get your official That's Deep Bro t-shirt to represent the show. Let people know you're deep bros. Also, Amazon, please use my banner to do your shopping. That means go to thatsdeepbropodcast.com, click on the banner at the bottom of every post in the UK, Canada, United States. Do your shopping as you normally would. Kicks back a little bit of change to the show. Stand up, stand up comedy. I um, I'm ramping up, ramping up to tape an hour. So if you want to see what I'm gonna do, come and see me get this bitch together. April 13th through 15th at the Brea Improv, Brea, California. April 28th and 29th in Sacramento at the Punchline. May 4th through 5th, Fartnix, Arizona, Stand Up Live. May 19th through 20th, New York City at Gotham Comedy Club. And then um, June 1 through 3, Denver Comedy Works in the downtown location. June 16th and 17th, Man Fran Disco at the Punchline. That is San Francisco, if you're not in your mom's house listener. But come on, <laughs> who doesn't listen to your mom's house? Am I right? <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Come see me uh, do the hour that I'm going to tape and put into, you know, history. Isn't that nuts? I don't know what I'm going to wear. That is a very tricky situation. What do you wear for a comedy special? I mean, we all know the infamous Eddie Murphy delirious red leather suit. You know, you don't want to do that. I don't know. Or do you? Do you? I don't know. Uh, so there's that. And anything else? I don't think I have anything. Any other announcements? Um, no, that's it. Okay. Well, there you go. All right. Let's get into it. Lots to get through it. Ah, um, did you like my singing? No. Okay. Of course not. Here you go. Hello, hello. 
I love this song. I love the kinks. Aren't the kinks the best? Damn. If you're a little kid, you don't know what the kinks are. Look that shit up, son. Get your life and listen to those guys. I listened to Lola uh, on a record player. I remember when I was like, I don't know, man. I was like seven and I would listen to the kinks um, on my little record player. And this song would come on. And if you listen to the lyrics, Lola is about, is about, um, a man dressed as a woman right now. Trans, we call them transgendered back then. It was just a guy with a dark, a woman with a dark Brown voice. Right. So I was like, what is this about? And then I, I remember putting it together as a kid, you know, when that age clicks in like maybe 12 or 13, where you suddenly understand dirty jokes and you suddenly understand what all the grownups are talking about around you. And you're like, Oh shit. You know, it's kind of like when you realized um, that the lead singer of Wham might be gay. You're like, oh, shit, that's what's up. Oh, okay. Or Darling Nikki, you know, the girl sitting in the lobby, <laughs> reading to a magazine or whatever. You're like, whoa, dude, you're just, there's an age where your mind gets blown. And Lola's one of those. So, hi, welcome to That's Deep Bro. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for watching me on YouTube today. Lots to go over. Heavy week, busy week for me. Number one, I finally finished The Great British Baking Show season two on Netflix. And I have to say, I'm devastated that my girl, Ruby, did not win, nor did Kimberly. She was my second choice for the victory here on The Great British Baking Show. Um, and what I really love about this show, because I've been just dissecting, like, what what is it that I'm just so drawn? It, it's like my happy place right now. It's what I do at the end of the day. I put my kid down and I go upstairs and I light candles and I put on some, I have a diffuser and I put in like vanilla cookie flavored oil since I can't eat cookies, but I, I put them smells in there and the room smells nice. And I pretend like I'm eating all these pastries that I'm watching. And, and I think the reason I like this show is like, well, what I like specifically, I like the, um, I just mentioned this last week. I like the earnestness of these people, the, the seriousness of the baking, but I loved Ruby because she was very self-deprecating. She was, every time, was so fucking amazing. Every time she would make these incredible bakes. Like she barely had time. She was a philosophy student and she didn't have time to practice her recipes as much. So she would wing it a lot. And you would just see her bakes looked so beautiful and full of love. And you could just see the skill and the heart in everything this girl made. But every time she would present it to the judges, it was so funny. She would be like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's going to be oh, God awful. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. She would apologize <laughs> and just like hate herself every time she would be judged. And I really related to that. I really related to that because, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks everything I do is great or good ever. It took me many, many years to even like remotely do anything close to this podcast because the, the self-deprecation is so is just so much for me. And to see somebody on a baking show have the same amount of self-loathing was so refreshing because in America, you know, we're so used to doing this like fake um, bravado, right? Like, I'm the best. I'm number one. I'm going to kill it. If you love what you do, you're never tired. Like this whole bullshit of like, we should be, uh, winners all the time and, and, uh, positive, 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 because the truth of it is, is that some of the most creative, successful, interesting people ha are wildly self-loathing and don't have high self-esteem. And that's okay. I think that's my point is that you don't have to try to be perfect and like fit and everything. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's the self-deprecators that are the funniest, the most talented musicians, um, the most talented writers. God knows one of my favorites, Bukowski, was a raging drunk uh, who barely got his shit together until he was 50. So <laughs> I'm always about the losers. I fucking love the losers. And I'm so bummed that Ruby didn't win, but she did make it to finals. She was one of the last, the final four, I believe. So she got, she almost got there, dude. I was rooting for her. Uh, David Letterman, excuse me. 
Huge self-loather. I, re- I remember reading about Letterman when I was in high school that after every episode he'd record of the Tonight... Not the Tonight Show, is it? The Le- David Letterman Show, whatever fucking late night his thing was, that he would like go home and just you know, put on that hair shirt and mentally castigate himself for how horribly he thought he'd done in, in that episode, which is so bizarre because, you know, you watch Letterman and in my opinion, he was one of the great late night hosts besides Carson, who's my absolute favorite, but Letterman is really good at his job. And it got me to thinking that, you know, there's something to be said for being, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Confident. Uh, but there's also something to be said for not being confident, because it's in that doubt. It's in that, oh, Christ, I'm sorry. This is going to be terrible. There's something in that. And what's in that is, hey, maybe I can do better. Because the confident motherfucker, he's not going to be there being like, I can make this better. He's like, oh, my shit's great. I don't have to worry about this. But often it's, the, it's the, that doubt that makes really good stuff anyways. I, I just, I was so taken with Ruby and I'm so bummed that my season is over of the Great British Baking Show and now I'm, I got Tom roped in and we're on season three together and we are slowly going on the emotional journey of becoming attached to, you know, 12 new bakers and we're going to see what they do and how they perform. It's a good bake. It's a good bake. We've got a soggy bottom. You cannot have a soggy bottom. So, uh, yesterday I had the joy of, of, uh, puttering, which I seldom get to do. I don't think I've had a good putter in months. And, uh, you know, normally, cause if I have a nanny here, I'm like super productive. Like if someone can watch your kid, you're like, I got fucking 20 things I haven't done in months. And, uh, for once, for once I gave myself permission to do absolutely nothing. And I have to say, that doing nothing is like one of my favorite things in the world. And I'm really good at doing nothing because that is an art form too. It's some kind of weird Zen thing. The ability to enjoy doing nothing. I just love it. I puttered. I rearranged, you know, knickknacks in the house. I I folded things in my closet. I I just kind of farted around and no, that, that room needs this and that. And it was just wonderful. I listened to my Hay House radio to, you know, animal psychics and all kinds of weird stuff. I just enjoy it so much. But anyways, okay, so let's get into things. I, uh, I had this wonderful epiphany as I was going to the dentist, I'm getting a a new crown done, which is always exciting. It's always exciting uh, when you get a new tooth or a veneer or something uh, in your mouth because for some reason, for some reason, it takes two whole weeks for them to mold a crown of your tooth. Uh, two weeks. I mean, what are we? And, you know, 1990? Uh, it shouldn't take that long. But in the meantime, they they throw in a wonderful temporary tooth and then they tell you, just chew on the other side of your mouth for two weeks which, as you know, is the most unnatural, uh, horrible, terrifying prospect because we all know, we all know that these temporaries that they give you are extremely temporary and that they don't even really put glue on them. I feel like they just put like a, somebody chews up a chiclet or a piece of trident and then they uh, put the crown or the temp on it and then shove it in your gum and they're like, you're good. You're good. Just don't chew on it. Don't floss either for two weeks. Um, so uh, when I got my veneers done, I had front temps and those fell out promptly. Those fell out when I was in San Francisco uh, performing in front of many people. I think we're doing your mom's house live. And like, of course, when I'm in San Francisco, my two front teeth fall out as I'm on the road, right? That's how it has to go. Uh, so I'm just waiting for this one to fall. And I've been vigilant about chewing on the other side, uh, but we'll see. So the point is, I was at Cedars, Sinai, going to my dentist. And I've noticed a phenomenon that I've I've like mentally noted over the course of my life. And I just thought I would articulate that to you. So you know when you're going in a parking structure and you're either going down, down, down the levels or up, up, up the levels. 
uh, I'll go up, up, up. Cause that's usually where I'm usually in, in California, they're stacked and the top level is open to the elements. So I always notice this and it makes me fucking bananas. When you go into the parking structure and you guys, everybody's in a line, right? And you're circling to find a spot and it's usually full, right? And you see the person, I saw this woman in front of me and I always see somebody do this where you're going and, oh, someone's going to back up and it's stacked, right? Everybody's fucking parked there. But then there's this one car who's got the, uh, they're backing up and that spot's going to be free in about, oh, I don't know, a minute or two. So the annoyed people behind the woman or man who's got their fucking blinker on letting you know they're going to take the one space that after two minutes of waiting and holding up the entire line of cars will be available. And you, you know the rage that you feel of like, you're really, really, you're going to wait for this motherfucker to buckle up, to gather their druthers and find their iPhone out of their purse and plug it into the USB thing. And then, or they're going to find their radio station and they're going to, you know, fuck around for another two minutes. Right. And of course, like I judge, I judge that person waiting for the space and the rage fills me. And usually if I can, if it's safe, I calmly go around them. But in my head, in my head, I'm always thinking, you stupid motherfucker, you impatient, unbelieving turd. Because here's the secret and here's the secret to life and existence in general is that you can stop and you can hold up traffic and you can wait and wait for that asshole to pull out of their spot and finally angle and go and then you take that or or you can take the path of least resistance which is simply moving on going up and up and up right because here's the thing if you just go up further maybe another level maybe two by the time you've gone two levels up in the parking structure, you know what happens? Nothing but spaces. Nothing but parking spaces. And I know this. You know why? Because I have faith. I have faith in the fact that I don't have to take the first fucking scrap available to me. That if I just persevere, if I have faith in myself, belief that there will be infinite spots, guess what? There are. Now, those spots are usually, like I said, a level or two up. Sometimes they're on the roof. Sometimes it's a spot that's a little farther from the elevator. But you know what? They're always there. And I've always thought to myself, these are the people that don't have faith. The person who has to take the first morsel, the first scrap offered to them. Because they're not going to find another space after this. There won't be another. There won't be another one like this. Well, yes, there will be. There's nothing but spaces if you are willing to just be patient and go a little further. And I just like that metaphor so much because it, it's, it, it, it's the difference between the scarcity mentality, right? The, uh, I'm not going to, I'm never going to have my good unless I take it now versus the mentality of like, you know what? The good's coming. The goods are coming. The spaces are all there. It's all there. If I just trust, if I just believe that like, Stuff's going to work out just fine, bro. It's going to be just fine. You don't have to hold up the line of cars and get and get anxious about waiting. Just go. Keep going. And it's always better that way. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. That's the whole thing. You know, that's the whole thing is just going with the flow and not, not resisting so much and trying to take the first fucking thing. And that doesn't, that's not right. God damn it. <clears throat> okay. So there's that. Um, interesting. I had a thought. So my friend, I have a friend, uh, who I was having a text exchange with today. I thought I would bring this up too, which was so interesting. Um, she goes, you know, I've, I've got this, I'm hanging out with this new group of people and, um, I just don't, I feel like I'm so intimidated by them. And I was like, why? And she goes, well, they're, they're, they have a lot of money and some of them are famous people. And I just don't feel like I, you know, I don't belong there. And it's interesting because this is kind of on the heels of, I think it was last week where we talked about, I had got an email from a boy who got into like an Ivy League school and he doesn't feel like he belongs there. And it got me to thinking, um, because she's like, oh, these famous people are going to be at this event. I don't even know what to wear because my, you know, I don't have as much money as them. So my clothes aren't going to be as cool. And 
and this and that. And I, you know, hey, look, we've all been there, I think, where you're convinced on some level that people are better than you or have more than you and and therefore they are better than you, right? That maybe money makes you better or celebrity makes you better or um, ability makes them better than you. And it kind of gets in your head and it's a head trip, right? And um, what I was going to say to that is that the celebrities and people that are in the public eye or whatever, who you think, nobody's better than anybody. That's the big secret is that Oprah Winfrey, who's my patron saint, Oprah gets diarrhea. Yeah. Even Oprah, the blessed Oprah, Queen Oprah gets violent bouts of diarrhea. She sharts in her underwear and panics. Like I'm sure Oprah was taping an episode of her show and she sharted. And even Oprah Winfrey has to go, oh my God, what do I do? Do I do I wipe and salvage this pair? Do I just take them off and free ball? Because I can't tell my assistant that I sharted. Um, she gets mammograms. Oprah Winfrey gets mammograms and has her boobs squished. She's not above that. There are nights that she can't sleep because she's worried about something, some fight she had with Stedman. She has family members that give her trouble and, and she probably has to establish boundaries. And she's talked about it, right? That she's had wacky people in her life that she's had to deal with. But really, most importantly, it's the diarrhea I think about with Oprah. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but my point being that, like, we think of people who are in the public eye or who are, like I said, maybe wealthier than, than you or, I don't know, sportier or whatever is better. And that's just not the case. And it... it and I was thinking um, in terms of royalty, right? And I think this is this is where at least in our culture, celebrity comes from because we don't have royals. We have celebrities, people that we kind of look to. Uh, we And their function in society is to, they function kind of as, um, as like Greek gods in a way. I don't know if you know, I don't know, that system, whatever. There was like a god that... Uh, had this function or that function and and you would kind of project your stuff onto them or they could take away the guilt for acting the ways that they do. But you project all your shit onto them, right? You hate Kim Kardashian, you love Kim Kardashian. The truth is you don't know Kim Kardashian. Who the fuck does? I mean, other than her family or whatever. But I was thinking in terms of royalty because uh, there, I think this came from, this idea of people being better, bigger than life, whatever, comes from the royals. I don't know. Uh, there's a there's a book called uh, Leviathan, written by Hobbes. Is it John Hobbes? God, I'm so I'm so bad with. Uh, I just know them by last name. Hobbes. It's got to be John. John Hobbes. Thurston Hobbes. No, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, the book called is called Leviathan, and you know old timey philosophy book. And what it talks about is how we justify the power of the sovereign, right? And the sovereign being a fancy word for the king, for the leader. And how that's done in society is, well, this guy writes, Thomas Hobbes wrote that, uh, hey, guess what? Human beings are inherently uh, pretty shitty people. In fact, human beings, if given, if left alone, will fight for resources, will choke each other and kill each other's babies to feed their own. So the state of nature is what he calls it. The state of nature being the state of things left without rule the state of nature, human existence would be nasty, brutish, and short if we didn't have rules, if we didn't have government. Now, thankfully, we have a sovereign, a king, a king ordained by God who uh, he's got the power to keep the rule of the land. And aren't we great? And guess what? The king is only given power by us, the people right? We make up the sovereign. So the theory being that the sovereign, the king is literally made of the people that he or she governs. And in that it legitimizes the power of the sovereign, right? So what does that really mean? That means that we legitimize authority. Authority doesn't work if we don't allow it to work, right? And so if you take that model, I don't know, this might be like way the fuck off, but uh, if you take that model of power and you kind of adapt it, 
we don't have celebrities. We have, I mean, sorry, we don't have sovereign. We have celebrities. And now a celebrity is president, which is fucking even funnier. But that's kind of the function of a celebrity, not to, not to um, rule over you, but to e- exist as a person that you project your stuff onto, I'm guessing. Um, but they don't have power in and of themselves. Nor, you know what I'm saying? Nobody has power in and of themselves over you. It's like what you allow them to have. It's all bullshit is what I'm trying to say. Power structures between human beings. It's all, it's all bullshit and it's a, a total construct to either control you or to make you feel like something or to make you buy something. So don't fucking buy into it that anybody is any better than you. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay, let's get to emails. Uh, oh gosh, where's the, where's my intro to my emails? It's so hard. Oh, where is it? No, no, no. Oh, here we are. Okay, let me go into emails. Of course, the volume was down when I uh, played that. Let's try that one more time as soon as it fucking... <sighs> you want to know why you're all fucked up? There you go. There's Dan Pena. Oh, first and foremost, a lot of you have been emailing me asking about books to read, like general self-help book. It's funny. I got about five or six emails randomly of people asking what books they should be reading. Um, here's a list of books that I've read that I think are really, really helpful. So get out your pen and paper. Um, yeah, check these out. These are great. These are just kind of like, if you don't really know what your, your issues specifically are, but maybe you're like, Hey, something's funky. I don't know. I don't know what, what's going on with me. A great place to start is Wayne Dyer. Dyer, D-Y-E-R is his last name. Just passed away recently. I'd say like a year ago. Uh, he was a psychologist and he wrote a book called Your Erroneous Zones. That's a great place to start, Your Erroneous Zones. It's basically um, kind of an overview of like psychotherapy and I mean the principles of it, not how to fucking practice it or anything like that crazy. But it's a wonderful place to start. I also like the book. It's called R- The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. The Road Less Traveled, fantastic. Um, also, if you want to get kind of real fucking wooey and uh, psychedelic and, and Eastern, I, you know, I love my Swami, Swami Sajidananda. Um, there's a book he wrote called To Know Yourself, and that's got a little bit more of like a, an Eastern leaning if you're into that sort of thing. And then if you want to go to the, um, the thing of like you want to be more successful at stuff, Tony Robbins is amazing. I think that's a great place to start anything. Awaken the Giant Within, I think, is one that he wrote. That's really good. And also Old School, this is the book that Phyllis Diller read that changed her life. You know, Phyllis Diller started comedy very late in her life, 35 years old, which is ancient in the comedy world because now kids know what the hell they want to do with their lives at like 15 and they start... I mean, Eddie Murphy started at like 15. Bill Hicks, same story. I think Bill Hicks started like 12 or 13 years old. Uh, Richard Pryor, I believe, started early too, like teenager. Anyway, Phyllis Diller had, I believe, five children, five kids, a deadbeat husband, was a copywriter in Oakland, California, and she was very funny. And this is before even there was there was such a thing as uh, stand-up comedy, really, especially for women, unheard of. And her husband said, you're really funny, you should go perform and tell jokes. And she did. And, you know, five years later, she was at Carnegie Hall. Isn't that amazing? Five years. And she was 35 years old with five kids to take care of. (sighs) What's your excuse? (laughs) So she credits this book called The Magic of Believing by Claude M. Bristol. The Magic of Believing by Claude M. Bristol. And it's written old timey. It's an old timey book. But the principles are the same foundation of all self-help books, really. You know, they, they say similar things, but in different ways. So like for some people, you know, you just have to hear it a certain way for the message to make sense to you. I loved it. I read that book like, I think when I was 28 years old and it just changed my life totally. I love it. And there's also a book I'm going to recommend. I'm not a hundred percent on board with this person's total philosophy. Um, But hey, she wrote a pretty great book called Bad Childhood, Good Life, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. (sighs) Okay, so I'm going to 
couch that with Dr. Laura is, um, I believe, anti-gay, anti-feminist, and pretty right-wing. So uh, I know she's, I know in her private life, she's like an Orthodox Jew and she's very, very strict that way. Um, So keep that in mind. But I think the psychology behind what she's saying, because she was a practiced, she was a practicing psychologist for years is pretty great. And the, and her language is very direct, which I always appreciate. Like I can't read anything that I don't understand what the fuck these people are talking about. Do I agree with Dr. Laura? No, I don't, I don't share her opinions on social um, issues really, but bad childhood, good life is a pretty straightforward thing. If you got issues with your mommy, with your daddy, uh, your family's all fucked up and you don't know how to deal with it. You feel guilty, uh, you know, cause you're, your abusive mom insists on coming over and, uh, you know, spending Christmas with you and you don't want to, that's a great book on how to deal with all that stuff. A very, very, and she uses great examples too. I can't believe I'm recommending a Dr. Laura book. Mm, sorry. <laughs> I should just apologize in advance, but Hey, if it's a fucking good book, it's a fucking good book. It's a fucking good book. Okay. So let's get into it. There's a few great emails that came in. I mean, they're all pretty fucking good. Um, but along this line, you know, I I want to read this one. I'm not going to give this woman's name just because, you know, she's in a pretty serious. Um, oh, hold on. Let me just make sure. Oh, this is not the right one. No, no, let's start her. Sorry, this isn't the one I... Um, now I do want to start with a heavier one. Sorry. I, uh, yeah, I think this one, this one came in and like, I really, uh, <clears throat> some, some of these guys, have I mentioned I'm just a comedian? <laughs> I'm just a knucklehead dope comedian with a bachelor's in philosophy. I've, I have no business giving people legitimate advice on anything. Just, you know, I always advocate seeing a therapist. You know that, uh, if it's a legal issue, go see an attorney. I have no business fucking telling anybody anything. Okay. There's a disclaimer. That being said, I wanted to read this for a few reasons. It's a pretty, it's a fairly, um, long email, but basically let's start here. This girl grew up in a, a family where she was molested by, it was her father or stepfather. Hold on. She remarried. Yeah. It's a stepdad and stepdad molested her and eventually was put in jail. Thank God. Uh, he's up for probation. And this girl who writes the email, who stepdad is in jail for abusing her and whatever. Um, she's been pretty good about staying away from the family that's toxic to her, which is fantastic. Um, now here's the problem. Parole. He's coming up on parole and she's terrified. What the fuck, right? Because she wants to move away, but she can't because she's got this fiance who she loves dearly. And the fiance is tied to where they live too, you know, has various family issues that he can't just pick up and leave. So she's asking, besides going to therapy, how the fuck do I get my life? Do I leave everything I've ever known and run this risk of losing my person? Is staying here even an option for me? Should I wait and see if my abuser makes parole before I make a decision? Right. Okay. First of all, I, I am, again, I'm no business answering this email. So I'm not, I'm not even going to fucking really get into the details, but I wanted to, I wanted to, <laughs> let people know because I think what's really important here to understand is that you may have grown up in in a family of origin where you were the child and you were taken advantage of, abused, maybe molested, all this stuff, but now you're an adult. And the importance of being an adult is that now you have the agency, the power to live a life that makes sense to you, right? And A a number one, A number one, if you're afraid of somebody harming you or fucking with you or showing up on your doorstep, go get your fucking lawyer, lawyer up, girl. That, that is number one. I don't think that's pretty decent advice that anybody would give. Go see an attorney and see what your rights are. Maybe there's a restraining order that can be made. Maybe there's just a phone call into the police station to go, Hey, this creepo is out 
And, um, you know, what can I do? I don't know. But see a lawyer. See a fucking lawyer. Number one, know your rights. And get protected. Protect yourself. It's so important. Uh, Number two, should she move? Should she stay? That's up to you. But know that if you stay, you will be in constant enforcement of your boundaries. Constant enforcement with your family of origin. And that's exhausting and hard. Is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. It's just going to take a Herculean uh, effort to, to stay sane. That's, that's very tough, okay? Uh, should you move away and start over? Mm. You can, actually. You can move away. And a lot of people, and, yeah, and I know I advocate sometimes I say, if you move away, you're going to take your problems with you. Sometimes, yes. Uh, are you going to have the emotional baggage of your family of origin? Yeah. If you go live somewhere else, you're still going to have the feelings that you had in the past. You're still going to have to deal with that. That's never going to go away, but you can physically separate yourself from abusive people. Protect yourself. You have every right to protect yourself. And that's kind of the gist of what I wanted to say. That's the most important thing from this email is that I wanted people to know that, you know, what happens when... What happens when you have some kind of trauma like this as a small kid, right? What happens is you operate out of a child's brain. For a long time, you're still kind of a weird, there's a weird thing that happens, even though you're an adult's body, where you get scared, you don't know what you should do, and blah, blah, blah. But know that you're an adult now, and you can do what the fuck you want, and you can lawyer up, and you can get the fuck out too. (laughs) I believe you need to do whatever you need to do to protect yourself. That's like A number one, protect yourself. I don't know. Well, here's the thing. If you leave, okay, if you leave and you move somewhere else, leaving behind the fiance that can't go with you, you can have a long distance relationship. You can try it. If it doesn't work, then it doesn't work and you can move back. So no love lost. You may want to give it a try. I don't know. I don't know. I can't decide for you, but it's scary. You're in a scary position, but just know if you're listening to this, you're watching this and you're in a scary position and it feels hopeless. You're not hopeless. You're a fucking grown-ass adult, and you can use your power. You can get the fuck out of there, because you ain't a kid no more. You ain't a baby no more. Hold on. I got to turn the air conditioning on. My tits are on fire. Let me pause this for a minute. All right. Turn that AC on. God damn. It's cranking in LA already, dude. It's like 90. Uh, so on the heels of that, some of you might have listened to that uh, discussion about the girl whose abuser is getting out of jail, and, think, and, they, and you thought to yourself... Well, that's all well and good for somebody who experienced overt abuse. Um, But what about those of us who might just have a kind of a shitty parent situation? And how do you know if you have a toxic parent? Okay, well, I found this article, which is pretty great. So this is for the people who are on the fence. (laughs) You You fence sitters who aren't sure if you're engaged in some sort of toxic parent-child relationship and if you should get your life and move on or if you should just keep taking the abuse. So here's the signs that you know, okay? Not, uh, the signs you know you have a toxic parent. Number one, they need you to take care of them. One classic toxic parent, oh, pattern in parent-child relationships, and these will largely be patterns rather than one-off incidents, sees the parent asking the child to be their parent and to fix and support them. This doesn't refer to helping a parent if they're physically disabled or getting them food when they're sick. It's a toddler-like demand to be cared for, mopped up, and cheered on constantly. Okay? Did you get that? Meaning, you're not the kid, you're the parent. So if that sounds familiar, guess what? You got a toxic thing happening. Number two, their feelings always come before yours. In a non-toxic situation, the feelings of all parties are rated and taken care of equally. One kind of toxicity, however, means that the feelings of the toxic person always dominate any situation, usually because they're the loudest and most volatile. Your own feelings are suppressed and trying to take care of them, calm them down, and soothe their emotions. If this sounds familiar, it was likely a pattern when you were a child. Number three, they have problems and ask you to conceal them. (laughs) Another fairly common source of toxicity in parent-child relationships is addiction and its corresponding denial and secrecy. Making a child complicit in the concealment of an addiction like alcoholism, nobody must know it's our family secret, while also subjecting them 
to its effects, embarrassment, isolation, the inability to trust a parent, a chaotic childhood environment is a pretty toxic toxic cocktail. (sighs) This could also apply to their asking you to conceal financial problems or to lie to other family members on your behalf. Okay. Number four, they control you using guilt or money. Oh, boy. I feel like this article is spying on my mom and me. If a parent refuses to let you do something reasonable, move out, take antidepressants, go to therapy because they control your purse strings, that's toxic. Money can also be a threatening tactic. If you're fiscally reliant on a toxic parent, they can threaten to take away that support if you don't obey the rules. Of course, guilt is also a powerful control method. Refusing to allow you to do something outside the lines without suffering a severe and very serious guilt trip. That one, I feel like I hear a lot from the emails that I get from you guys. Like I want to, especially with moving away, I want to leave. I want to go fulfill my dream of doing X, Y, and Z, but I can't because my mom, my dad, my uncle, my grandma, whatever makes me feel guilty about doing that. So that's probably not healthy. Number five, they refuse to let you grow up. You're still my little girl is kind of sweet sometimes. It only becomes toxic when your parent actively resists you showing autonomy and becoming an independent entity. The line may seem blurry here, but this brand of toxicity means that you aren't allowed to grow up. Your adult decisions are undermined or you're harassed until you change them. They demand the same level of control they had over your life as they did when you were small. Or they are extremely offended, puzzled, or aggressive when that's not allowed, right? Because we all know what happens when you're um, when you're a child and you have a parent. What happens is the child grows up and they get their own lives. They got to get their lives. That's the whole point of, of a parent raising the child so that they can be self-sufficient, start their own families, right? And sometimes... The, uh, the parent doesn't understand that and they feel uh, upset that, that you've done that. So that's not a good thing. Number six, they don't recognize your boundaries. This is a fairly epic toxic element. The door you shut can be opened at any time without knocking. The phone can be called at any point, regardless of your sleep or schedule or work. They can say anything they want to you in public or in private and demand that you talk to them about any topic they like. And if you do assert a boundary forcefully, they react with anger, confusion, denial, or guilt tripping. Wow. Wow. I feel like that should be number one. (laughs) If any of you have had um, a parent with boundary issues, my mother was a number one at that one. And that is like just a page out of out of Christina's young Christina's life story. Oh my God. Number seven, they constantly undermine you. Negging isn't just for dudes in fedoras. I don't know what the word negging means. N E G G I N G. It sounds racist, but Hey, it's fucking written here. Negging isn't just for dudes in fedoras. If one particular toxic in one particular toxic situation, it's a defining characteristic of a parent's treatment of their child. Here's what that word means. Uh, small digs about vulnerable attributes, height, weight, academic achievement, basically anything can be covered up as, quote, jokes, but they're actually a way of asserting dominance and control over a kid, even when they grow up and not acting, uh, not, I'm sorry, and not liking or reacting to the jokes means that you, the child, are flawed for not having a, quote, sense of humor. Don't buy it. That's my favorite. Um yeah, it's like they poke fun at your vulnerabilities. And then when you're like, that's not funny. They're like, Haha, what's wrong with you? <sighs> I just can't take a joke. Jeez, that's fucking evil. <laughs> Number eight, they're insanely passive aggressive. The I'm fine parent who sulks through meals and who refuses to express their feelings except through oblique references can just be a bit aggravating, but it can also be their way of maintaining a stranglehold on the family dynamic. Passive aggression is still aggression after all, just expressed in a socially acceptable way. If your parent regularly gives you the silent treatment, that's passive aggressive and toxic as hell. Oh man, Edith was the queen of the uh, silent treatment, which was actually quite fine when you think about it. It's the parent that uh, that doesn't leave you alone. <laughs> Fuck. 
<laughs> right? God, I wish you would have given me the silent treatment like the first 18 years of my life. <laughs> it would have been a lot happier. It was the coming back, the unsilenting that was the problem. Number nine, you're still scared of them. Are you in your adult life with a secure job and your awesome friends still frightened of what might happen if you disobey or displease your parents? Have you tried very hard to put yourself in a position where they can't do anything to hurt you, your possessions, or your equilibrium? Do you get a shock of adrenaline when the phone rings showing their number? Congratulations, you're an adult remnant of a toxic childhood. That's hilarious. I think I just brought that example up when my mom was still alive. Like every time the phone would ring, I would have a, that panicked. (laughs) Kevin Christie, um, on this show, he came on, we talked about when his father died, about that phenomenon of like the phone ringing can send you into trauma. Okay. At the end of this article, it says the good news is that toxicity isn't actually a death sentence. Um, a toxic parent or caregiver may be willing to build a healthy relationship with an adult kid, one in which their own problems don't dominate the landscape. Yeah. Okay. And if you decide to have kids, you have the chance to change the pattern and become so non-toxic that you should be poured into the water at Chernobyl. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, also look, keep in mind the parents that do this stuff, it's probably because they didn't have great, um, models to go by and it's, you know, their, their needs were never met, so how would they know to meet your needs? Um, but that certainly doesn't justify you getting your life, right? Getting your shit together and and um, trying to change that stuff because that's no fun for anybody to grow up that way and then to give it to your children, right? It's uh, fucking terrible. Okay, let's go. Let's do this one. This might be the last. Let me just see. Oh, this is also a long one. Basically, this is about a lady who wrote in and she met a very sweet guy. Um, She has problems with dudes in the past. She's in therapy, getting her life. Very good. Thank you. Um, Okay. She likes this guy. She friend zoned him at the beginning, but Regardless, he has just been the absolute sweetest. We've gone to dinner, movies, and he even cooked for me. He made pizza from scratch and even made sure I had the topping. It had the toppings I like. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Um, he's constantly telling me I'm beautiful, is always complimenting me and texting me throughout the day just to say hello and to tell me he's hoping I'm having a great day. So here's the thing. He has potential and he's a super nice guy. And like you said, we should choose the nice guys. Yes, amen. Hallelujah. My thing, apart from my issues that I'm dealing with, by the way, I've gone to therapy. Okay, very good. By the way, he needs some work. I think his jam is 1995 because he looks like he's stuck in it. His jeans are super low and loose. His hair is some crunchy shit because he uses hair gel and he needs to not be fat like Bert. My question is, how can I help this guy get his life without being a total jerk? How can I motivate him to reach for a little more in life? I'm working on getting mine and want somebody to be on the same journey with me. How can I tell him that he needs what that he needs for his pants to be high and tight and to do something different with his hair? How can I get him to partake in some physical fitness without embarrassing him? How do I get him to get rid of the dad shoes? These things may sound superficial and I'm not asking for perfection because I am by no means even close to it myself, but I just need to be more attracted to him. I no means I, fuck, what does it say? Because I am no means even close to it. So I need to be more attracted to him. I'm kind of need these things if I'm going to consider him out of the friend zone. This guy is growing on me, but I need to help him. Help mommy Tina. How do I do that? Okay. Well, my love, you can't. <laughs> you can't can't help a guy get his life you can't help anybody get their life because you got to get your own life that's the whole point of the show right you got to get your own life now i can show you the road maps i can tell you what i've done i can suggest things that i know have worked for other people but boo-boos the whole point of boundaries right we just discussed this with this girl whose abusive stepdad is getting out of prison boundaries you can't change other people's. You can't help other people get their life. You can set an example and hope that they take an example. But can you help somebody get motivated to succeed in life? 
No. Can you make somebody lose weight that they need to lose? No. Can't do any of that stuff. Can you make them, uh, you know, go through their childhood issues so that they become better boyfriends, husbands, whatever? No. No. You can lead by example, right? You can do all these things yourself and they can maybe see how cool it is to do that stuff and how helpful that is. And then maybe that they'll get inspired to get their own life, but you can never do anything to change anybody else's life. You can only get your life, right? And hope that the others get theirs. Now, when I say helping someone get their life, there are cosmetic, there's cosmetic shit you can do for boys. Okay. Because the good ones often don't come cosmetically perfect. Okay, but here's the, here's the, and I've said that you can change the cosmetic stuff. You can get him to get the hair gel out. You can get him to buy a pair of uh, high and tight jeans. You can change the sneakers. You can change the glasses. You, you know, all that crap. That's, that's bullshit. That's exterior. But if you want to do that for somebody, for a guy to make him more attractive for you, whatever, the template's got to be squared first, meaning he's got to have values. He's got to have the career right or the idea of what he wants to be. He doesn't have to have a ton of money, but he has to be on a path that is a successful path, right? They're just passionate about something that he's working towards. And he has to be moral, right? Is he a cheater? Is he a boozer? Is he a junkie? Make sure all that stuff's ruled out on your checklist of needs and wants. Now, for most people, I'm assuming that (laughs) non-addicted, gainfully employed, reasonably intelligent, kind, moral. Are those enough of a criteria for like a partner? I I think. So once those boxes are checked, then all that superficial crap, a haircut and all that new pair of jeans, um, then you can do that. That's the kind of stuff you can kind of, as a woman, massage into your spouse. Because hey, fucking face it, we've all done that as women, Right. You get the guy, but the package is a little screwy. Maybe he sleeps on a mattress on the floor or hasn't bought an actual bar of soap in the last five years and uses shampoo to wash his crotch. That's fine. All that stuff is fine. (laughs) It's like, that's nothing. But, uh, you know, not being motivated to get a job or, you know, all that stuff doesn't care about his body. That's that's not an easy fix, boo-boo. You can't help him. You can't help anybody get their life. You can only get yours. And here's what happens though. When you do get your life, this is the best part of getting your life. Cause now you're saying to me, Oh no, do I have to let this one go? Are you saying it can't be salvaged? I don't know. It depends on what you're willing to put up with, but it sounds like motivation's important to you. And that's, that to me seems like a non-negotiable, but here's the good part. When you get your life, when you get your life, you don't even see the ones that don't have theirs, or maybe you see them. Uh oh, that motherfucker don't have his life. And then you get the fuck across the street. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't take the number anymore. You see them, you find it kind of enticing, right? Uh oh, this one doesn't have his life together. Uh oh, this one looks like he might abandon me. Uh oh, this one looks like he's going to be drama. And that's kind of exciting and alluring. Oh, I'm tempted to take that number. But then you remind yourself, uh uh-uh, uh, I got my life. And when you got your life, you don't feed into the drama. You don't feed into the abandonment. You don't feed into the, the stuff you know is not going to make you fucking happy in the long run, right? Because some people need the charge of the bullshit, right? The charge of the fights and of the dysfunction because it feels familiar. It doesn't feel good. It feels familiar. Those are two different things, <laughs> uh, right? So my love, my advice to you, it's just to keep doing you, bro. Keep going to the gym. Keep going and, and, and succeeding and getting better and go to your therapy and, and, you know, figure your life out. Get your life. And what happens when you get your life is that others appear who have gotten their lives. Oh, there's that friend that I just made who is uh, pretty healthy, pretty together, has good boundaries, um, you know, doesn't have... Maybe he does have uh, issues from the past, but has worked through them. So that's great. And we can be friends and there's no boundary weirdness. You know, they're not uh, calling me crying every day about some weird thing. Believe me, I've had those friendships where you're like, why are you, why are you calling me and crying again? I don't know. Um, so yeah, you got to get your life and then meet others who have gotten their lives. That's the whole, and that's it. You just raise your game, right? You elevate, you elevate your shit. You get your shit tight. Now, I'm not saying you're better than anybody for doing that, 
They got their stuff. Everybody's in different places, right? But for you, it's, it's not a fit to have somebody who's not as into getting their life as you are. So just find somebody who's getting their life. And it's going to be a lot easier for you to be together. Okay. Now there was one last email I wanted to check. Oh, 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 it was so good. It was a girl. Oh, here it is. Okay. Um, Katie writes in, I recently moved to a new city with my boyfriend. And while we like it, I'm finding it harder than expected to make new friends. I guess I just don't know where to start doing that as an adult. My work is not the easiest place to make friends. Also, I am more of an introvert. Any advice that you would have would be much appreciated. Okay, Katie. Yeah, I agree. It's super hard to meet people as an adult. Um, I can't count how many friends I have like as an adult, maybe in comedy, you know, but I, I made those like in my 20s and yeah, new friends at 40, kind of kind of difficult. <laughs> but the newer friends that I have made in the last two decades, um, I've found that it's common interests. You know, if you're an introvert, I don't know, do you have hobbies? Do you like to knit? I like to knit. You know what I noticed that people who like to knit do? They get together in groups and they knit together. It's the cutest fucking thing. I, when I lived in Redondo Beach, there was... Um, this yarn store that I used to visit and I'd pick out my fancy yarns. It was so exciting. And cause nothing's more exciting than a ooh, fresh, what is it? Ball of yarn. You know, you're like, Oh, the possibilities I can build a scarf or a scarf. Cause I don't know how to do anything else, but build a scarf. <laughs> I can crochet a scarf. <laughs> I can't even knit. I can barely crochet a scarf. <laughs> um, So the point is I would go to this wonderful store and I would see all these ladies of different ages, mind you. It's not just for like old, cute ladies, but all these women hanging out and knitting. And I thought, oh, that's such a great way to meet people who like the same things you like. Do you do yoga? Go to yoga class. You know, you'll see the same people week after week, maybe, you know, hi, what's your name? And I know you're an introvert, but sometimes you kind of have to put yourself out there a little bit just to make new friends, you know, because usually before, before and after class, right? You guys are putting your shoes on, you're grabbing your mats. Oh, Hey, I noticed you. I like that mat. Where'd you get that? Or whatever the fuck the, um, the conversation starter is. Or like, Whoa, teacher had a bad day today. What's up? And then you guys maybe start chatting that way. I think, um, common interests is, is like the best way to meet people or even the dog park. Do you have a dog? take it to the dog park. I mean, I can, I don't like talking to people in the dog park just cause like, I don't want to talk to people, but, um, <laughs> if I wanted to, that seems like a pretty cool place to meet people. Right. Uh, I don't like bars. I think that's kind of low energy, meaning, um, negative energy bars are where people's demons hang out. Like, I don't know if you want to go where alcohol is served generally because it tends to be like, um, you know, it's, it could be like kind of a negative baseline for activity, for discussion. And, and it, you know, it's not, you're not going to meet sober people. You want to kind of meet people in the light of day. And then you go drinking with them <laughs> once you know them and you know what they're all about. So, yeah, I would look at your, and if you move in, if you live in a city, that's good. Um, there's like an app called Meetup. I've tried it before for mom stuff, like ba- people with babies. I think I went to one event like at the Grove or something. That was fun. That's a good one. Yeah. Get a dog. You can, people always want to talk to you when you have a dog. I'm telling you. That's like number one. But you can't be afraid of talking to people. You always have to talk to people. I see your little picture. You're cute. You're, you're definitely approachable. I mean, you don't look like a serial killer. I'll tell you, Katie, very attractive young lady. I can't imagine um, people don't want to talk to you. There you go. I once read an article that was like volunteering. You can volunteer. Like who does that? I mean, good people do that. I don't volunteer. (laughs) I'm way too selfish to volunteer. I mean, I volunteered in high school when I went to Catholic school and they forced you to volunteer for Christian service hours and you, you know, you wouldn't pass that grade level unless you volunteered for 20 hours a semester. Then I did it, but kidding me? Spend my free time doing free work for other people or get your life. I'm just kidding. I kind of wish I did have time to volunteer. It'd be fun. I wonder what I would do. Animals, animals are the best, right? Forget people. People are terrible, but animals, 
They just love dogs. They love you. Dogs are the best. Doggies. I've got two of them here. Oh, you just poked your head up. Fief was sleeping and he goes, did you call me? They did. They got their anal glands expressed yesterday, and I think Bitsy still kind of smells. You know, and their their little tuchuses still stink. It's heavenly aroma. I was, she was sitting on my lap this morning, and I was like, oh, that smells like fucking dog anal leakage. So, fantastic. All right, mommies. I um, hope that was helpful. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Hello. Um. Check out a live show. Like I said, I'm ramping up to do a special, so I would love for you guys to come out and see it before it goes on print because after that, I will not be doing that same hour again. And uh, yeah, get a shirt, see me live, shop on Amazon, blah, 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 blah. Have a fantastic week. Email me at that's deep row podcast at gmail.com. And um, that's it, jeans. Have a great week. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with Philosophize with It's Christina P, a.k.a. Miss Jeans. This ain't your mom's house. It's a different theme. Gotta be critically thinking. Like you caught up at a cocktail party. Our thoughts start to sink in. John Locke, or was it Socrates? Aristotle or Plato, maybe Hippocrates. Got us talking all properly, topically. Just a comedian discussing these philosophies. Serious questions, silly people. What's that? That's deep, bro. It is the ultimate metaphor for life, and you know what that is? What? That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro.